finally got your first leadership gig, loving the new role, but feeling the pressure of your new responsibilities and all that expectation to perform. Well, don't worry, you're not alone. Crossing the chasm from a technical role to leadership, from doing stuff to managing and leading people is the toughest challenge any leader must make. Welcome to the Human Edge Show, the podcast dedicated to help you do just that, successfully cross the doing to leading chasm. Campbell Such here, Chief Chasm Crossing Guide. I've made all the mistakes so you don't have to. I want to help you learn those lessons much more easily by sharing my experiences and talking with brilliant people who have already figured it out. You'll get great actionable tips, strategies and techniques to make the transition so much easier and faster for you. Now let's get to it. Welcome to another episode of the Human Edge Show. Today I'm honoured to have Simon Thurlow from Ripe and Pirello with me on the show. Simon, great to have you here. Fantastic. Thanks, Camel. Thanks a lot for inviting me. Simon Thurlow is Group Executive of the Pirello business of Ripe. Simon founded Pirello in 2011, 10 years ago, with Sean Weber and Nicole Schaefer, and was CEO through that whole period before it was bought by Ripe. Pirello enables SaaS companies to focus on their product and their customers rather than the platform. And yes, they're cloud platform management specialists, and they're a Microsoft Gold partner and Azure specialists. I first met Simon when he was technical director of Plan B, early in an early leader in the virtual disaster recovery space back in the early to mid 2000s. Simon is an accomplished, successful leader and business builder with a preference to focus on others and talk about them rather than himself, as evidenced by his LinkedIn profile that talks about everything but himself. So Simon, welcome to the show. Just to kick things off, what's something that not too many people would know about you? Yeah, thanks, um, Campbell. Uh, I thought you might ask that, and so I was thinking what nugget I should uh, share with everyone. And um, and I uh, realised that uh, by the time I got to my late 20s, I'd owned 51 different cars um, because I'm a car enthusiast and I still get hassled about it today, although I don't have that cadence any longer. But I looked over them and, you know, as many people sort of our age will appreciate, the cars of our youth are now horrendously expensive. And so by the time I got to about 28 or 29, I'd owned over a million dollars worth of cars in today's money. Of course, back then they were not worth anything near that. But yeah, so that's an interesting fact. Yeah, if, I, if only you'd held on to them, right? Oh, yeah. Or some, some of them. And what out of all of those cars, Simon, have you got a favourite or something you'd pick that, that stands out? Uh, yeah, so there's two, I guess, that I... You know, I, I think I'd love to own them again, but I've learned that those memories are best left in the past. Um, an XA Falcon Coupe, which these days are just unobtainium, like you'll pay 60 grand for rusty wrecking pieces, um, and a Mazda RX3 Coupe. So I am used to really enjoy the rotaries. In fact, I've I've currently got one. In fact, I've got two. <laughs> um, yeah, so those two probably um, would be my favourites. Wow. A, a rotary engine car, that's pretty unusual these days, right? Not too many people would know what a rotary engine was. No, that's right. Yeah, they're sort of sort of dying off, I think. Interestingly, my father owned a car called an NSU. Ah, oh, right. Was, uh, Felix Vankel, who invented the rotary engine, that was his the car that he designed. Indeed. And, um, and they had a really long wheelbase and were an awesome car to drive with this really crazy transmission called a semi-automatic trans- transmission where you 
to change gear, you touch the gear knob and that disengaged the clutch as opposed oh, really? to having a clutch. It was a really crazy system. So, um, you know, I've got a little bit of experience um, driving driving a rotary. So, oh, cool. like, that's awesome. Um, Simon, just to change gear slightly and to take you back, probably, you know, you talk about our age. Well, it's probably a little way back. Um to your early days in leadership, and what are some of the some what are some of the things that you learnt out of that? What are some of the uh, takeouts that someone watching or listening to this might might be able to use as a new leader to help them get across that bridge and that chasm from doing to doing stuff to leading and managing people in a way that's perhaps easier, faster, and, and less chance of some mistakes. That's a good question. Um, I think if I if I think back to my first actual leadership role. Um, it was um, had nothing to do with IT. It was actually um, in a manufacturing company uh, that had a. Um, it was actually a really innovative New Zealand company called Interlock that made a whole bunch of sort of door and window hardware and exported into all around the world. Actually, it was a fantastic company, and um, and I was a you know hardworking sort of um, uh, semi engineer, I guess, and. Uh, and I got promoted to run a, a, a die-casting foundry with two shifts of about 20-something people, and I would have been 21 or something. Like I was pretty young. And I can remember um, I can remember one of the people in the team was a Tongan chief, and, uh, and I, I think I knew that at the time, um, but I was, um, uh, you know, I had to sort of make some things happen, and this guy, who was a fabulous chap but he he sort of uh, didn't want to do something and I just tried to brute force him into doing it <laughs> and of course you know he just his mana or you know his pride wouldn't let him uh, wouldn't let him do that and it, it really just it came to a head almost and that was a real lack of um, EQ I guess on my part to really understand um, what is behind uh um, people's motivations and actions because quite often it's nothing to do with the job and it can be something completely different. So just really, you know, this little 21-year-old trying to tell a, you know, a, a big tongue-in-chief what to do uh, didn't really work. And I guess what I'm calling out is um, uh, understanding um, the people that you are asked, that, you know, that you're now responsible for leading um, and what their motivations and drivers are is, is a, I think, a bit of a shortcut to a more harmonious um, workplace. Yeah. And, and even extending it one step further, I'm not saying that this is exact in this example, but I've found over the years that um, when you see, um, you know, this is this has been really helpful on many occasions. When you see that someone in your team might not be, um, you know, uh, might not be. Um, performing as well as you'd expect, um, uh, quite often it's got nothing to do with work at all and there's there's something happening at home and actually just taking them aside and going, hey, look, I'm, you know, this is what's happening and it's not you, to your usual standard and, you know, is everything okay? Is there, you know, something at home that's, you know, on your mind? And wow, that, you know, that's so, um, it's a fabulous thing for the person to have their, you know, their leader come and talk to them and see how they're, cracking on and quite often it could be something you could help with or it might just be that you need to cut them a break but yeah understanding that that a lot of the performance um issues that you might see uh have nothing to do with work at all is that's been quite a valuable insight actually yeah 
Yeah, that's um, that is really really valuable. And it, it, for me, one of the things that I learned early in my career, which which I kind of stumbled on by chance, was that it was after after a, a guy that I had to make redundant um, left, and in his leaving speech, he said, "You know, there's not many there's not many leaders and, and managers that I've ever worked with in my life that I actually like and respect." And 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 he said, "And you're one of them." And um, and what I and I didn't realize at the time where that came from because I I was just doing what I thought was the right thing. But it turned out when I looked back and analyzed it that it was the fact that I'd taken an interest and I did actually care and and did everything I could to make that transition as easy as possible for him. And through his career at the organization I was with, look, looked after him and built that connection. And I think you're onto something really powerful. What yeah. um, you're sorry, Simon, go ahead. Yeah, just following that track, actually, <laughs> and in that same organisation. There was really good leadership in that organisation, now that I think about it. Um, uh, but, yeah, um, on the same sort of vein, um, a, a really key lesson I learned, um, and it was reinforced in the later business, um, and, you know, without sounding too harsh about it, if there is someone in your team that isn't the right person, you know, they they just, you know, they're just not suited, Um Normally, you can see that when the heart just isn't in it. Um, I remember um, observing in the, in the very early days when there was a restructure and a couple of people had to had to be let go and it was my manager who was sort of making those decisions and I was involved in, uh, in having to sort of convey that information and so on. And there was this young guy who... who um, was restructured out of his role and he was never happy at work. You know, it was always just a, you know, he didn't like coming. Um, he was okay, do a reasonable job, but his heart wasn't in it. Um, and, and he lost his job. And I felt so like, this is the very early days of me being a leader. I felt so awful about it. Really, really sad for him. I thought it was the worst thing that could happen to him. I connected with him like maybe three months later. And what I knew about him was that he, like he would, in the spare time, he'd sit there, he'd doodle away and draw things on paper, and they were just fabulous. And and I caught up with him like three, three or four months later, and he said, getting let go was the best thing ever because I hated that job. You know, I was just stuck there. And he, I don't know, can't remember exactly what he got, but something like um, being an art teacher or something. You know, he'd actually completely pivoted and got into something he was passionate about. And so the, the lesson from that um, was that quite often people, if they are stuck in a in a in a job that they don't enjoy, as a leader, they are an enormous drain on you and your resources and your energy because you're having to manage them all the time. But quite often, you're actually not doing them a favour by letting it persist. You know, um, so the sooner you can take action to help people either come right or you know change to do something that they're passionate about, not only is it better for you as a leader as well as um, the rest of your team see when people aren't the right people. They already know probably before you do. And yeah. if you don't take action, you're losing their respect by not taking action. But you're also actually doing the person a favour because most times they'll go and find something that they're actually, you know, uh, enjoy, that they will enjoy doing. So it's, yeah, taking early action on that stuff was a key lesson, I think. Yeah. That, that's that's fascinating, isn't it? And when you look at the when you look at the stats, Gallup did a global survey, and one of the key things that came out of that was that, and this is globally, and I suspect in New Zealand and and, and many of the Western countries, it's a bit higher. But um, was the the engagement of staff, you know, this is across all industries and across all levels and all types of roles, is only fifteen percent. So, you know, it's it's very low. Maybe it's thirty percent in New Zealand, but you know, you look at that and you go, that's just stunningly bad. And so. 
if someone's disengaged, it probably means it's not an ideal role for them. And for you to be able to help them and to to identify what that role might be, which might be in another role in your team or another role in the organization, or it might be, you know, it's time to move on and I'll help you find another role. That's that's a really powerful thing. And you build that connection then and and then you've got that connection for life. And and um and something I'd like to touch on a little bit further down the track in our conversation is a little bit about that, like that building connections in the, in the network piece. Um, but that that helps everyone then, you and them yeah, and the organization. Uh, yeah, for sure. So back in the Plan B days, you now Plan B was started by a guy called Martin Wellesley, um, who who founded it. He was one of those people that, um, you know, he's very very intelligent, um, and he would um, focus on one thing at a time, and he would he would you know get to the bottom of the absolute detail, like first principles, you know, completely understand it, get it rock solid, move on to the next thing, and uh, and he so he, he put his mind to respectful leadership. Um, in Plan B, where I learned pretty much most of what we do at Parallel was learned through Martin and, and what we learned at the Plan B business. And so, when you talk about employee engagement, um, I think there's a there's a fairly straightforward way to ensure that well to have you know the best chance of having uh, engaged people. I mean, fundamentally, you need to care about people. <laughs> and I think because our uh, our business is engineering-led, you know, Sean, Nicole, and I are all, all used to be engineers, very focused on the customer outcome and our people, you know, and that was a core tenant of why we started the business. We wanted to create a place that was great to work in. But, I, but having a careful recruitment process and making sure that, you know, the people who are coming in um, are naturally suited, like, by the things that they like to do, whether they're introverted or extroverted or they're rule followers or they're innovative, you know, as long as those things are aligned to what the role needs, you do a culture check to make sure that, you know, they'll fit in with the team. A bit of diversity is good, of course, but you don't want people to come in and, you know, spoil the, spoil the barrel. Um, and then make sure that there's a development pathway for them once they're in your business so that they can evolve in their role. Um, then they should be reasonably engaged, you know, and respectful leadership, of course. So, you know, we have one-on-ones every month with all of our team. I quite often get um, the odd objection about, hey, do I need to do this every month? I'm like, yes, you do. And if you've got nothing to talk about, it's going to take you two minutes. <laughs> but, you know, you always have that that uh, way of checking in with people. And by doing those things, careful recruitment process, only the right people come in. Honesty is the only option is our core value number one. So you never bullshit people when you're recruiting them. Oh, I've got this fabulous role, you know, da da da. Right. Yeah, can you, you know, sweep the floor and end the dishwasher? <laughs> yeah. Um, and we all do that. But yeah, if you do that, then then that chance of engagement is, I think, a lot higher. Yeah. Cool. It's uh you talked about the recruitment process, Simon. What um what were some of the key things that that a leader or a new leader in particular, when they're having to make a their first hire, if you like, might consider focusing on or what are some of the things they might think about to help make sure that you get that right good culture fit good fit with you able to work with them good fit in the team good fit with the organizational culture you know some of those other things that we tend not to think about especially when we're going well I've got this role I need someone to be really good at that technically but actually when they come in they're not a good fit for the team and ultimately that's one of the reasons why they leave not anything to do with their technical skills yeah I mean absolutely right so I think it's straightforward to get rid of all of those leave in the first six month reasons before you hire someone. Like it's not hard. So, excuse me. So, from our perspective, um, we use psychometric profiles. So, that was something going back to the Plan B days that Martin introduced. 
And I thought, uh, didn't, you know, wasn't that much of a fan. But now, if someone, you know, obviously people have the right to decline to do them. If they do, then we don't, we end the recruitment process there. Yep. So I think that is the number one, or, or sorry, one of the key things to do is, um, is site profile. So uh, a site profile is not a test. You don't pass or fail. It's just a profile. And so, and, and the way Parallel uses it is we have, you know, position descriptions and we have a, uh, like an ideal sort of attributes for a person who would do that role. So um, just really simplifying, you know, if you're a, um, if you're a um, automation engineer, for example, then we'd really like to see someone who doesn't necessarily follow rules is, is more innovative if that is a scale, because we want people to think outside the box and challenge ideas and think of new stuff. Um, if it's a, an accountant, well, I want someone who follows the rules. You know, don't do. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah, I don't want to get creative with the finances. No, um, no. You know, and, and if you're a, a, you know, if you're a salesperson, then probably being a bit more extroverted would be better than being highly introverted. So things like that. So that's so we 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 set up what we think we need for the role, and then we get people to do the site profile, and then we overlay the results over the role. And things that don't match are things that we talk about in the recruitment process. Yeah. So you know, and and we use a um, we use a company called Assess Systems in, in Auckland, and you know, as part of that, like it's not terribly expensive; it's a couple hundred bucks a pop, and uh, and we can get a verbal uh, interpretation of the profile if we need it. Um, but the tool that we use gives us the questions to ask or suggested questions. So so we do all that. So that is making sure that, and I use the analogy of. Um, you know, wading, walking up a river upstream in the river. You know, if you don't have that natural fit for what the role needs, you might be able to do it, but you'll be walking against the current and eventually you'll tire of it and that's when you tap out. And so that's one of the ways that we've seen in the past people leave in the first six months or so if they're not ideally suited to the role. So that's number one. Um, Technical validation is always a bit, uh, to be frank, I don't put that much weight on it. You know, I think you sort of, well, maybe it's just because we've been recruiting for so long and I don't do that much of it anymore, but you can sort of, um, in a CV, see what people have done. I don't really look at certifications and university and stuff like that. I look more at what they've done and then actually drill into the um, what they say they've done in the, in the CV. For example, you might say, put, um, you know, put new... Um, storage system in for Spark. Okay, what did you do on that on that project? Oh, I worked in the team that put it in. In the team, what did you do? I, I uh, made sure the hardware was in. How did you do that? Well, I ordered it. Okay, so in that project, you ordered the hardware for it. You know, if you dig into that, you can sort of reveal, you know, and get a feel for it. Um, sometimes we do technical validation if we need to. So, you know, making sure the history is there and it's the right fit for what you need, the experience is there. So we've done the naturally suited to the role. We've done the sort of competency thing. Um, we, uh, I don't put a lot of weight in reference checks other than asking referees, what could the person have done better? Oh, nothing. They're excellent. Okay. Well then your ref- reference is probably not that visible. You know, it's good to get that sort of inside. Yeah, nice. um, but we, as we get towards the back end of the recruitment process, you know, the, 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 um, profile is, so the first thing is harvest the CV, have a 30 minute zoom to just see if, the, if it looks like they're the right person. If it is, send them the, the profile to, to do, then have an in-person, hopefully, um, interview um, and bring in some key people. If that goes well, um, 
uh, we might get them in for one more if there's other people that need to talk to them. Otherwise, we'll actually put people with our people without the interviewers there. And we say to candidates, this is your opportunity to interview us. You know, do you actually want to work for us? Do you, want, you need to talk to our guys and see what it's like. Um, what, you know, what's the culture like in our place? Uh, you know, are the people that you're going to work with, do they look like the sort of people you enjoy working with? And and ask the hard questions. And as I mentioned before, honesty is the only option. It's core value number one. It's the only ranked core value in our business. But we don't bullshit people. So don't, you know, paint a rosier picture than the actual role. And in the interview process, tell them all the things that are wrong with the business. You know, oh, look, this process is really immature and it's painful and, you know, we're fixing it, but it's not great. So what I want is that when people start, um, they are naturally suited to the role. They, they like the people that work there. They can fit in with them. Hopefully they believe in what we're doing as well. And they will hopefully be pleasantly surprised by working in the business, not dismayed as they realise that that's broken and that's broken. And that, that guy doesn't know what he's doing. And, you know, so there's a look, yeah, it's good to be really brutally honest. And if you do all that, like we, if we break those rules, then we might have someone tap out early. Otherwise, we don't. We, you know, we just, we've had, I think, 2.9% um, attrition in the last year. And we've also doubled our numbers, our staff numbers. So, just having that that careful process. It's not difficult. It's not onerous. It's just a methodical approach is a real um, circuit breaker, I think, for that. Yeah, that, that sounds awesomely solid approach and and um, not just process-driven but sort of broad and smart about the way, the way you do things. Um, it, interestingly that you give the new potential recruiter a chance to talk to the team. Um, yeah, uh, yeah I, I've always believed that interviewing means that it's a, it's both ways, it's two ways. And so it's just as much about them finding out about you as it is you finding out about them because if either of those doesn't work, none of it works. So that's yeah. uh, that's really cool. What um, I didn't, sorry, Campbell. Uh, you know, go, we go give ahead. our team uh, the right of veto. So when they interview the person <laughs> as well, you know, that, that one-to-one, if, if they can't, if they think they can't work with them, we don't go any further. Yeah. And that's that's so that's great for them, right? It gives them the, the sense and the actuality that they've got some control over who comes into the team. It also means when they give them a tick, they've got some incentive to go. Well, we better make this work because we've said they're going to fit, right? So Absolutely. It, it works. It works all the way around. Yeah. Oh, look, that's uh, that's great. Um, just to change tack slightly, uh, one of the you and I were having a conversation in a in a we'd, we'd caught up over I think over a beer or. A, glass of wine or maybe a gin or something yeah. and um we were talking about uh present presenting and i think um, perhaps it was after i'd presented at the cio summit and one of the things that i've always had a um a real i always really struggled i was would sort of get up in front of a whole bunch of people and talk it was something i found really challenging and i, I don't know for whatever reason now i actually find it um a, a lot less challenging and and a chance to you know, uh, get get some knowledge and my message across to a whole bunch of people if I get a chance. And I remember you saying to me that um, you'd always struggled as well. And and then at at one point you said, right, this year I'm going to take, or at this point in my in, in my career I'm going to take every opportunity I can to speak. And um, 
and the benefits that it brought to you. Could you just talk a little bit about the benefits that it brought to you doing that? Because as a new leader, especially in the technical technology space, a lot of leaders are introverts. Yeah. And 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 I believe that an introvert or an extrovert makes, you know, it doesn't make anyone anyone necessarily a better leader or a worse leader. They're just different styles and different ways of doing things. But as an introvert, it makes it a little bit harder generally to get, and I'm an introvert, to get up in front and talk in front of a bunch of people. So could you just talk a little bit through that and maybe some of the benefits you've found that a new leader might go, well, instead of putting it off, I'll, I'll take those chances and I'll learn and grow doing it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is really, you know, you've, uh, you have a really great framework for working on this that I'm about to talk about, obviously that we've, we've uh, done a bit of stuff with, but um, yeah, I'm a natural introvert. My my probably one of my most enjoyable holidays ever was when I bought a car and I drove it around South Island by myself for a week. <laughs> 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 I really like my own company, but um, but yeah, I, that's that that might be how you are. But I guess if you want to um, grow a career and you know move into leadership and maybe start your own business and own it. You cannot avoid being uh, being good at engaging with other people. Um, if you're not, then that will absolutely handbrake your business or your career growth. It's just so essential. Um, and I think as as I've gone through my career, if you call it that, I guess I've um, yeah, I, I think back to so I think back to the Plan B days in 2003. I think is when I got into Plan B, very early days. And um, up until then, I had been an engineer and then I had a small consultancy in England with a couple of mates of mine. And we were basically selling services to uh, IT services companies, specialist services that they don't sell. Um, and so I didn't really have to do that much of the sales stuff. I just come and do the technical pre-sales, which I could talk all day about technical stuff. And, you know, and that was fine. Um, but then in the, in the plan B days, um, as technical director, I was basically pre-sales as well. And we were selling things like back then in the mid-2000s, um, a lot of people didn't understand that they actually had a problem to solve, you know, because uh, this is really, uh, I can remember actually, part of the re realisation we had was helping prospects to understand that, hey, like you say to them, what, what happens if your email goes down? Oh, no problem. They'll just call, people call me if they talk to me. You know, like people didn't realize how much business was done through email back then. Now, obviously, we couldn't live without it, but um, they couldn't really back then either. And so I'd go into these sales meetings and I'd always be so anxious and, you know, agitated because I'd worry that someone would know more than me about what it's going to talk about. And I'd be shown up as this imposter. <laughs> I laugh now, but it was awful back then. Yeah. And and it was through repetition. You know, we had 500 customers, I think, at Plan B, you know, by the time I left. So I'd done a lot of pre-sales meetings. And, you know, it was just that repetition and, and getting into it, you just get slightly more comfortable and slightly more comfortable. Um, but still getting up in front of, um, you know, on a stage in front of people, that would still really, I'd just, I'd get physically impacted by it to the point where my brain wouldn't work. And and so I couldn't, you know, I'd just fumble my words. I mean, I, I yeah, so I was really mindful of that. And then as I, you know, we started the parallel business and um, <laughs> also I remember back in the early days, even the early days of parallel probably, my I thought, okay, business is simple. You just build a technical service 
it solves a business problem. You educate someone that that's what it does and they buy it. You don't need all this relationship nonsense and stuff like that. You know, it's, that's meaningless. And I, I <laughs> so quickly learned that that's not the case. Um, yeah, so, you know, people have choices and when their choice is to buy from A or B, you know, they'll buy from you if you've got a relationship with them and they like like you or they respect you. And, you know, so anyway, so I roll forward and um, and I've still got this problem of, of clamming up in front of people and not knowing what to say. Yeah, and, and so I, I maybe, I can't remember, I don't know if I read something or I just thought back to my pre-sales days of, gee, the only way to get better at something is to practice it. So um I think, no, that's right. I, I thought back to one of the original investors in Plan B. That's right. And, and, uh, and I, you know, we'd be talking about a, a prospect or something. He goes, oh, yeah, I know him. He's my mate. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give him a ring. And I'm like, how do you know all these people? And he says, I just never say no to an invite. <laughs> you know, and, and he'd done that for 30 years. So I thought, but how do I solve this problem? I know what, I'll just never say no to a request to speak somewhere. Um, and I'll do it for a year. And I, yeah, I think I was maybe mid mid that year was probably why I was. It was either there or at AFQI, um, perhaps. And yeah, and so I did that. And so it was just the repetition of getting up and speaking in front of people that I just got more and more relaxed with it. I'm still I still get a bit you know anxious about it. Certainly, don't in a pre-sales or meeting a prospect. That's fine, but getting up on a stage in front of people is still a bit anxious. But yeah, so I said I'll do it for a year, and I. I did it for another year and I pretty much still don't say no. I mean, I'm getting really busy now with our businesses now way bigger and we're actually now part of Crayon, which is a Norwegian company. So uh, it's huge. So the time uh, availability is good. But yeah, that that was uh, certainly a, um, uh, I'd suggest that to anyone who wants to get better at interacting with other people to just practice the thing that you're not good at and do it as often as you can. And eventually, you know, you just, you, you'll get used to it. But that that ability to communicate well and interact with other people, especially if you're introverted, introverted you know, that will absolutely hold you back if you don't get in front of it. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Simon. That's that's great. And that, uh, that gives us a really good feel for it. And, and you made a comment before about how if you don't get out and 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 connect with other people, that um, it really holds you back. And uh, that was sort of, you're probably coming at that more from a sales perspective, but actually I'd encourage anyone that's in a leadership role, in a technical leadership role, in any kind of leadership role to consider that, you know, a big part of your role is actually sales. It's selling to your team, it's selling to your peers, and it's selling up into the organisation to your boss. And all of those things are built around uh, connections and relationships and understanding how people work. So any anything that you can do in that space around those human skills around influence and persuasion and, and connecting with people, communicating, listening, yeah. <laughs> um, are really powerful, right? Yeah, indeed. Yeah. yeah for sure. Um, so just, just touching on the um, the networking piece. Um, so so just sort of expanding a little bit more on the on what you've talked about with speaking. And what have you, what do you do around building that, um, not so much the speaking connection, because that then sort of puts you in front of a whole lot of people, but building your 
your network. And, and I'll just preface it by saying networking is a, a kind of an ugly word for a lot of people. It's this the sense that it's this shallow thing where you hand your business card out and you this is what you can get out of it. But my view on networking is it's the opposite and it's building connections with people that you actually click with because you never know where they're going to end up or how you might be able to help them or how they might be able to help you. And if you do that, it makes life a, a whole lot easier. So you have a conversation with a few people, you find a few that you connect with and then you grow that over time. What's been your approach to growing and building your network, Simon, both personally, professionally and also in your in your business life? Um, yeah, I guess from a, I'm not really eating my own dog food because in, in, a, in my personal life, I'm pretty one of those, you know, introvert, right? So I've got, you know, a handful of close friends and a bunch of acquaintances and, and I'm pretty happy with that. Um, but certainly in the, in the professional, um, world, um, yeah, I, I guess as a consequence of being in my role, I'm just meeting new people all the time. And and I can't avoid it, but if I'm not trying, so that came out the wrong way. You know, it's just a consequence of yeah. being in my role. I don't avoid it. It's just how it is. Um, but prior to that, I guess, um, yeah, it's a really good point. So even if if you're not in a sales role, um, uh, you know, this concept of networking is awkward. You know, you go in an event and there's a whole bunch of randos that you don't know, and just how do you go up to them and start a conversation? Um, uh, so that was always a challenge for me, and I and still naturally prefer not to talk to someone than to talk to someone. So it's a it's not a choice; it's a, it's a physical, willful thing to go and do it. But um, but yeah, there's just so much uh, richness now. I mean, uh, if you if you look at what's available now, there's meetups and all that sort of thing that are really valuable. Like if you're a technical um, person going to, you know, there's lots of like in a cloud space, Azure meetups and so on. Uh, for years in the in the early days of our business, we would do VMware ones and so on. And there's VMware user groups and um, yeah, just going in and going to these events where you have a common interest with other people, that immediately makes it much easier to just talk to someone. And and it's I think it's good to just go and, and give yourself some really straightforward goals like Okay, I'm going to go to this Azure Meetup group, and I'm going to talk to one person that I don't know. You know, and that's all you have to do. And just and and it can be as simple as, oh, they just talked about X, Y, Z. Um, you know, that's pre- pretty interesting. What do you think about that? Or you know, hi, I'm Simon. You know, where you work? <laughs> it can be that simple, and, and just roll on from there. But but doing that absolutely builds out that that sort of peer, even a peer support group, right, for yeah. technical people to. Yeah, but also when when you know, I think you you summarise it really well. But as you grow that sort of group of people that you know and know you, then even for career growth and opportunity and all that sort of thing, you know, you just find that doors open and there are more opportunities that that you uh, come across. So it's it's really valuable to do. Um, and I think yeah, just if if you find it really difficult, then just giving yourself a small attainable challenge to do each time you go somewhere. Like, okay, this year I'm gonna to go to four events and at each one I'm gonna to talk to someone I don't know. Yeah. Just do that for a year, you know, and then next year it'll be I'll talk to two people and you know it just becomes easier. That's right. And and out of that out of those people you might find there's one or two that you click with and yeah. then you then you look for ways to be able to then grow that relationship, you know, send them some information, give them a call occasionally, go out for a coffee, whatever. Good and point. the key thing is you don't know where they're going to go. And someone that met you 20 years ago, 25 years ago, um, and got on with you and you built a connection, 
and now you're in a position where you're in now and if they called and, and if it was a good good connection you'd at least take their call rather than yeah. wonder who they were and then and if they asked for some help you might you might help them either solve a problem or find them a role or you know and the other way would the other way works just as powerfully for you to reach out to them and go hey well look I see you're doing this and you're a real uh, expert in that field can you help me or point me at someone who might be able to help me so that's that's the why for doing it it's yeah. it's not just about uh, networking or building a connection it's the reason is because it'll help you grow your ability to live a much much better life over over time which is yeah. um which is which is awesome um just um couple of things, Simon, just before we wrap up, or one thing just before we wrap up, one of the big challenges that I see in a lot of new leaders is that they get put into a role and there's a lot of being left to sink or swim without the support that might really help them to uh, move nicely and smoothly into that role and then feel comfortable to reach out to their to their leader or their manager um, for help and to, you know, the, some, some of the things that you talked about earlier on. Um, as a, as a, a leader of leaders that's put a new leader into a role, either in their first leadership role or you've brought them in from outside and perhaps the early day in, days in their career, what advice would you give to a leader of leaders to help make the transition for a new leader into that role, either in your company or into leadership, uh, smoother and easier and more likely to succeed? Yeah, I've done that a few times, actually, um, or quite a few times, brought technical, technically capable people into leadership roles. And uh and then on many occasions it's like it's it's um you know i know it's cliche to say this but you know being great at devops doesn't mean you're great at managing people you know they are two completely separate skill sets mm. um and uh and we've had a number of people in our organization go oh, i think i'd like to get into management okay management is this that this that and this i don't want to do management you know we've had quite a few people actually tap out from going I like the idea of it. Actually, thank you for for doing that. Um, you know, a, a, another example is a chap, a really, really like fabulous guy, very technically capable. Will have a massive career ahead of him. Um, had an interest in product management, so we put him into a product management course for three months. I don't want to do product product management. Nice. So yeah, I think giving people the opportunity to get a taste for what it's all about is good. Um, interesting story about a guy. And if he listens to this, he'll know I'm talking about him. <laughs> but um, in the in the early days of Plan B, he's worked with us for ages. But in the early days of Plan B, he he has always been a very highly capable technical specialist. Um, and he wanted to get into a management role. And so, um, in fact, sorry, before him, I promoted someone else from technical into a management role. First time I'd done it. Um, the, the person didn't work out. And I think he felt like he had some shame or something if he was to go back to what he was doing. So he left the business and that was a real travesty. You know, a fabulous person, highly skilled technical uh, a person and, he, and we ended up losing him. And, and that, was, um, that was just a rookie mistake on my part. So ever since then, whenever um, someone is, is, looks like they've got the, um, uh, the desire and capability to be a, a manager, you know, leadership and management will just separate those two, but a manager, then um, then I say to them, that's great. I can see how you could probably do it. Um, bear in mind that most technical people who move into a management role don't like it and or that or they find it really challenging. So why don't we do this? Why don't we just do a three-month, you know, trial um, and you can try it out. And if you find that it's not for you, then there's no negative um, connotation to that whatsoever. 
you move into you go back to your technical role and let's let's now that we've brought, we've sort of for now ruled out the the management pathway for you we'll build a development path that has more technical specialization yeah. or technical leadership as opposed to management so um so that's the approach that we take now and that works really well and so the story that i learned re- uh, the lesson sorry i learned recently was um that that chap that um Sorry, yes, so the, the the second person, technical person that I promoted into a leisure role, I said that too. He did it for three months and said, this is not for me, you know, and he moved back into a, you know, like a principal consulting role or something and stayed with us and, and everything was cool. Then um, literally about a year ago, maybe, maybe 18 months ago, um, we were recruiting for a leader for a reasonable part of the business and he put his hand up and said, hey, I'd like to, I'd like to um, to take that role. I said, oh, but we we did that. Remember last time, and it and it didn't really pan out. He said, Simon, that was fifteen years ago. Wait <laughs> <laughs> in a heartbeat, right? Yeah, yeah that's right. I mean, he, he'd just been doing technical stuff the whole time, but obviously, fifteen years older, and you know, time moves on. And so, and he has just been an exceptional leader and manager. He's really honed in on it. His team really enjoy working with him. You know, if you're I think it's easier if you're technical and you and you have technical capability for your team to respect you technically. And then as so you get a few credits, you know, that you can consume with your clunkiness of learning how to be a manager. Um, but yeah, I, I think so long a uh, bit of a long answer, but um coming back to your original question, I think um uh, making sure that you give people that opportunity to try it out and then back out if it's not for them. So you're not setting them up to fail because the likelihood of it working is pretty low. Um, giving them the opportunity to learn um, you know, like how to manage people. And they, they used to be a really good, I, I, the one that we used to send people on has gone, of course, but there are new ones which are first-time uh, technical people becoming first-time managers. You know, getting them on training courses to give them some tools for how to encourage positive behavior, how to convey negative information positively. Sorry, not negative information, but, you know, information that could be perceived as being negative, portrayed in a positive way. Hey, here's a way you could be even better at doing that thing. You know, don't do that and that and that. Yeah. <laughs> but that sort of that sort of thing. Um, also identifying when people are, are getting to a threshold of sort of hit, hitting the rev limiter in terms of the education and it's holding them back or it could hold them back. For example, uh, one of our uh, team, actually, who is now our CTO, um, he he uh, has been really instrumental in the development of our cloud services. Um, and he, uh, yes, actually, in my own education back in the Plan B days, um, myself and Sean Weber, um, uh, we both went and did a graduate diploma in business at the at the University of Auckland because we were technically, you know, on point. But we were starting to move into the commercial side of business and didn't really understand it, didn't understand finance, didn't couldn't read a balance sheet, all that stuff. And so we went off and got educated and that sort of lifted the lid on the next phase. Yeah. And so uh, we did the same thing for this guy who um, was technically excellent, but I, you know, you could see that he wanted to move into uh, a bigger role and he really had to go and backfill with that um, that knowledge. So we sent him on the graduate diploma in business at Auckland Uni. Um, which was really tricky for him with a really fast-growing business, a challenging service, young children. You know, he, man, he really he earned that. But um, but yeah. So identifying, you know, where people need to help and making sure that you help them and don't set them up for failure. I think that's yeah, that's a really key thing. 
Yeah, that that um, that's look, that's an awesome approach that you have, and the, the piece that I pull out of that that I think is gold. That anyone that's watching or listening to this, think about it carefully because the the key is not setting them up for failure. So one of the things that I that I've learned, and there's a guy called Daniel Gilbert who's written a book called Stumbling on Happiness, and the thesis of the book, the summary of the book, is you have no idea whether you're going to like something or not until you actually try it. No matter whether you think you'll love it or whether you think you'll hate it, you won't actually know, and um, and if you try it and it doesn't work, often the only way to go back is to leave the company. And the biggest challenge with that is, especially if they're highly competent, highly capable technically, and they're looking to move into a leadership role, it's a double whammy. You've got a an empty an empty lead in the team, and then you've got that that knowledge and expertise leaves the company as well. So if you're building that, and not many organisations do, and I'd encourage anyone that's watching to think about how they might do it in their organisation, build a path back that doesn't drop the status and identifies then, hey, let's build you a path down the place that you've worked out that is probably far more suited for you. So that's that's just awesome. That's yeah, really sure. awesome. And I think if you're if you're an engineer or yeah, if you're a technical person thinking I'd like to be a manager, go and talk to someone doing the role yeah. that you'd like to do and ask them what what's their day look like? What does their week look like? I actually remember you sort of reminded me of in my early days, I was um I was like the primary um, engineer, systems engineer for Sony New Zealand in the late 90s. <laughs> Gosh. In fact, I was on call for them over year 2000. Um, you know, click over. Yeah. So uh, back in the, anyway, so I, I remember the, the chap there, fabulous guy, um, really, man, I, <laughs> we did some really big projects um, which, uh, which required some all nighters over weekends to get them done. And, uh, and we built a good rapport during that, during that period. And then I remember looking and going, well, your role looks pretty interesting. He was like, you know, I guess you call him CIO um, or head of IT or something. Uh, I said, oh, I wouldn't mind doing that. He goes, oh, yeah, it's really great. Look, I build these budgets and I think about this and I do that. I'm like, oh, I don't want to do any of that. <laughs> Not at that point anyway, you know, yeah. I was 26 or something. You know, that, yeah, so actually going and talking to someone and understanding what it actually looks like, you know, what, what do they have to do day by day? As opposed to oh, I'm a manager now. You know that's a career move. I think it's it's well worth it. Yeah, and you find out in advance that uh, maybe there's enough of it that just doesn't resonate. The, even if it's not, maybe even if it's in the future, that's right. Uh, right now isn't the right time. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, Simon, that's a fantastic way to leave this conversation. I've, I've got a whole bunch of other questions I would love to ask you, but uh, we've probably run out of time. So. Thanks very much. Really appreciate it. And I'd, uh, I'd love to have you back on the show at some point to, uh, to have another chat and ask you a few more of those questions. So it's been wonderful. Um, really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks, Emily. Yeah, I've enjoyed it also. Have a good one. Back <laughs> <laughs> see ya. Okay. See ya. Thanks for listening. If you have a friend or a colleague who would benefit from this episode, please pass the word along. If you have a friend or a colleague who would not benefit, but you haven't been in touch with them for a while, give them a call. iTunes reviews are great to get the word out and to help me create the show that's most useful for you. And if you're frustrated or having challenges or would like some help, guidance, assistance with your first leadership role, then check out integrationcatalyst.com in the link in the podcast notes below. Or pass this on to your boss to nudge them to get you the help you really need to cross the doing to managing chasm and get you powered up on your leadership and management journey. Oh, and if you want to make sure you don't miss an episode, hit subscribe. Until next time.